0: You're listening to Idea Collider, a show that explores the world of asymmetric learning. On this show, I will sit down with pharmaceutical experts and business leaders to discuss how to embrace uncertainty and the different learning style that follows. I'm your host, Mike Rear. Let's get into the show. In this episode, we interview Professor Brian Smith about his book, New Drugs, Fair Prices, which is quite remarkable laying out the important complexity of the pharmaceutical ecosystem when we're looking at things like value and we're looking at things like innovation and importantly the impact on the drug pricing conversation so we go not quite chapter by chapter through the book but really try to dig into brian's philosophy and his views on not just what is working and what's not working but also how we might then go on and improve things so i know that you'll enjoy this and you'll enjoy the book so enjoy thank you so Brian, so delighted that you've been able to join us on the on the podcast, especially that it coincides with the release of what, what for me is a really important contribution to this conversation around pricing and value and innovation. Could you start just by letting everyone know, you know, who you are and and, and how you got here?
1: Okay, well, I've I'm what they politely call an industry veteran, which is a nice way of saying so that I'm quite old. I entered the industry. I remember walking to the doors of my R and D lab. On the sixth of February, nineteen seventy-eight. So it gives you an indication. In a place you probably know, Mike actually a place called Fordon in the north of Newcastle. And I worked in so I a RD chemist for five years, and then I worked in the industry from handbag in in commercial roles for another fifteen years. I started with a company called Sterling Winthrop, which is now part of Sanofi. I, I went via a company called uh, American Cyanamid, which is now part of Pfizer, and uh, I think the, the last. A uh, job in the industry I had was with Roehm Mannheim, which of course is now part of Roche. And then, about twenty years ago, about twenty-two years ago, I—I've always had this. I've always, you know, on all these management development centres, I've always scored off the scale on this curiosity and needing to learn thing. That's how I was a scientist in the first place. And I and went back to, to university. Did my PhD. My PhD was in the effectiveness of strategy formation processes in the industry or in other words why do some of us make strong strategies and make big strategies and for the past 24 years now I've spent my time researching that topic basically trying to understand how the industry works and I've you know the output of that has been books and put a dozen academic papers and about 300 uh, industry articles so I spend my time writing and researching and I work with companies too I must have worked with most of the major players in the industry for the last in the last 24 years and that's what I do the best way to shorthand that is what my teenage daughter says now, if any of our listeners who have teenagers will understand that actually my main job is a taxi driver and uh, not so long ago I was driving around and I heard this whispering in the back and one of them must have asked something along the lines of, What does your dad do? And my daughter said, He's a geek. And that's essentially what I am I'm a geek about the industry and its evolution and how its business model evolve and how we compete in the industry. So, uh, and that's what I am, and uh, a geek.
0: Fantastic. Actually, that's a word that I use for myself. If people in yeah. the industry ask what I do, I sort of talk about. I'm a farmer innovation geek, so hence my interest in books like yours and uh, and the kind yes, of contribution.
1: Like my wife, my wife likes to say, Brian enjoys doing research. It's so much easier than having a social life.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, actually, I uh, that probably differentiates you and me because uh, you, you've got a massive ability to do research in a way that I find the outputs of what you and uh, the folks in my team do are, are, are genuinely fascinating. So, I'm a, I'm not a very good. I'm not very good at being a geek, but I am very interested in it. And, and certainly, you know, this latest book, you know, I, I was an evolutionary geneticist, biologist, you know, a long time ago. So I've always enjoyed your kind of view of ecosystems and evolution and uh, selection pressures and so forth. So, Do you want sort to of give us a hint of what you aimed at in this book? And and probably as importantly for listeners, because we've had Peter Kolchinski on on this podcast, and we've had John LaMatteiner very recently on the podcast, Talking about their books, which uh, I think are similar in similar attempts than yours. Uh, Could you tell us, you know, what the aim of this book was and how yours sits next to theirs?
1: Well, well both, you know, Peter and John, his, his work, I respect enormously, but they both contributed to me. they were both among mm. the 80 people that I interviewed for this book. Mm. Although, as I've come to it, I think I, I've taken a, a different approach and a rather wider approach. I, I tell, I think one way to describe it is that this book is motivated by fear. Um, you know there's there's a couple I know who are you know and like who've been married for many many decades and and like all couples have always bickered you know, like we do, but who increasingly have in the last few years that this bickering has got out of hand and become really quite negative and, and destructive and I'm worried that they're going to split up and that couple or the industry and our society, in particular, US society, because the US is the epicenter of supply and demand in pharmaceutical innovation. This book's motivated by the fear that that social contract that the industry is built on, you know, society says uh, we'll enable pharmaceutical innovation with temporary monopolies and funding basic research and educating people and all of that stuff and the industry in return promises to deliver these drugs that society needs and i'm worried that that social contract will break down and i know that both one of the things that peter and john and i all have in common is is a recognition of that tension that that social contract is framed so as as i explained to someone recently in a sense this book is a bit of an attempt to be kind of relationship counsellor where i'm trying to get the two sides to understand each other better because if they broke up if that social contract frayed if either side walked away from it or you know reduced their commitment to it that would be a tragedy for everybody concerned i mean you know there isn't anybody anywhere that doesn't or is doesn't directly or indirectly or need pharmaceutical innovation or it's going to need it it's been a very successful marriage for the past few decades and i don't want it to end so that's what motivated the book i think perhaps the difference between where peter and john and i come it and before I come on this this you know it's this strange academic beast and you know academics have to have a they have to have an underlying perspective okay and and you know, as you know from my, my previous books, my, my particular work is, is is evolutionary theory. Essentially, that's an aspect of complexity theory. So I look at pharmaceutical innovation and say, look at all of these entities involved. You know, everything from academic researchers to the NIH to patient groups to the U.S. Patent Office to the to FDA. These are all creatures that, that are interacting and adapting to each other. And to an academic, that is a complex adaptive system. Which means, therefore, that the the critical implication of that is that the drugs we get and the prices that we pay for them, emergent properties of complex adaptive systems. That seems obvious, but of course, the dominant metaphor that we use in the industry is pharmaceutical innovation as a machine. Mm -hmm. When you hear people talk about we ought to control prices. So you hear people about saying, we need to have free prices in order to encourage innovation. They're effectively thinking of pharmaceutical innovation as a kind of machine where there's a big lever that you pull. And that yep. lever says yep. either, um, you know, you pull this lever this way, you get more innovation. You pull it this way, you get lower prices. And and that that is a very poor metaphor. That's not how the industry works. It's much much most people listen to this will know it's much, much more complex than that. You. you need a different way of looking at it. Complexity theory gives you that. I draw the comparison with the apothecary's garden, you know, in in times gone by, you know, when the business model of the pharmaceutical industry was the apothecary. Okay, mm. the apothecary usually had a garden at the back of the shop. Mm. And he managed it for the optimum yield of the op- optimal herbs at the at the optimal cost. Actually I say he, it was usually his wife who managed it. That's an interesting weapon. And I'm looking at this from the point of view of if this is a complex adaptive system, how do we manage it so Mm. that we get both innovation and affordability? Because Mm. if we don't get both of those, the social contract will break down.
0: Yeah.
1: And that would be a disaster.
0: Yeah. and And I love that thing. I mean, in a way, your analogy with the marriage was, was wonderful because it, it's almost like the, as the debate's polarised, people have just started shouting insults at each other rather than uh, trying to understand uh, each other.
1: It's interesting. There, there are a couple of people I've been engaged and talked to, and I, I won't name them to, to spare their embarrassment, but they've got really stroppy with me. And they're really unhappy with me. And, and it, it reminds me, because they're at either side of the debate, yeah? Yeah. and it reminds me that nothing so much as being a marriage counsellor and the two, the, the couple, you know, each of them is, is trying to get me to say they are right and the other one's wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, you know, it, that's, you know you're, you're both right to some extent, you're both wrong to some extent, but if you want to make this work, you have to understand each other. And that's, yeah. that's really where I'm coming, at from, coming yeah. from in this book.
0: Yeah. And then, so, so take me through the book now, cause it was sort of interesting, you know, the rabbit holes that we could go down. but in the interest of time. So, I mean, you know, first, of all is that, you know, how important the question is this? And, you know, I think you've just given a hint of, you know, this is a problem that everyone wants to solve. Mm-hmm. We might have different approaches to doing it, but you are, you know, the, the, your introduction of let's be careful if you're going to tweak an ecosystem that you're not going to do it harm at the same time. So mm-hmm. could you give a sort of hint of, of of why, you know, that starting point?
1: Well, you know, we see that, you know, if we, if we stick with the, the ecosystem, the parallels with the natural ecosystems so are saying, We've seen that before i mean americans listening to to this will know about the great dust Bowl of the 1930s mm-hmm. where this new technology came along called the tractor uh, mm-hmm. and yields went wow you know through the roof and in the process they destroyed all the root system and it, a few years later you had the dust Bowl. Mm-hmm. we had the example of the the, the grand banks fishery off the, the coast of canada as well and it's quite imaginable that that would happen i mean it's not so long ago that we had hr3 going through congress in this idea that well we'll just import reference pricing from europe which you know please you know don't misunderstand me that's not to say that there isn't some value in in negotiating and managing prices but importing your hta from an entirely different healthcare environment is not a sensible thing to do, you know. And, and the same way works works the other way too, you know. We here we have a, a system where the, I don't know, what's the thing like eight thousand recognized diseases, and only about well less than ten percent of them have any sort of management or cure. So you know, let's not kill ourselves that the ecosystem could work a lot better than it does. Um, um, I'm worried about ecosystem class, but I'm also worried, like the apothecary, what concerned like the apothecary about how we optimize the yield of it. So we get the best value out of it. And although we use things like, you know, new FDA approvals and so on as as a sort of proxy measure of the productivity of the system, they're not very good measures. Mm -hmm. What we want is as much value for society as possible out of it. And because if society perceives that it's getting the drugs it needs, at prices it can afford, it will continue to do all the stuff that it needs to do to make it possible. And yeah. if it doesn't, it won't. And there are plenty of unreasonable people that, that are willing to, for political or other reasons, to mess up the system.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and I think you you know one of the questions that you addressed early on is is you know, how important is America and all of this because you know we do tend to track FDA approvals. I think. I, just pulled out this morning and prep for this. I mean, you know, 22, we do have a problem anyway. We've only got yeah. so 28 this year so far versus 42 at this point last year. And, you know, there's a possibility of a very poor out turn for, 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 yeah. for this year, which you know has got, has got reasons, 40%. but you also point to, you know, the U.S. hasn't always been the dominant force in our industry, you know, that it was Germany and other things You know, happened to, to, to change that. So it, 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 it's, it's, it's an ecosystem that's, that is where it is, but it's not necessarily perfect.
1: I focus on the book on on, on the importance of the USS partly part for two reasons. Partly because of its huge disproportionate influence on pharmaceutical innovation. But also because if you're going to do any sort of rigorous academic study, you, you need to focus the research. You can't research everything. And any study that tried to study both the US and anywhere else in the world would be too way. The US is such an outlier in the way it behaves because, of course, we're not just talking about what happens in academic labs and in biotechs and in pharma R&D. We're also talking about the insurance system and the PBM system and, and all of the stuff associated with that because that's all, that is all part of the pharmaceutical innovation ecosystem.
0: Mm. Yeah, and, you, and as you point out, there's a declared interest from China and others in entering the, entering yeah. the game.
1: and and that's one of the reasons we have to be careful about how we manage the ecosystem of course because the the pharmaceutical industry is a jewel in the crown of the u.s economy and to to a lesser extent in in europe too and we could very easily damage it which is not to say we should disproportionately protect it and society should suffer because of that but we could very easily damage it and and there are many countries not just china who would just love to have the dominance that the U.S. has in pharmaceuticals.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one place where I find myself sort of nodding as as hard as I could was, you know, you define innovation the same way that we do, right, in our innovation index, which is, you know, did, did you get to market and did anyone write prescriptions for it? You know, did, did they want it when it got there? Could you start with just some depth on, you know, why your definition of terms was really important all the way through?
1: Well, you know, I'm... <laughs> At very early on in my academic research career, I remember I was, I was introduced this quote by Voltaire. If you wish to converse with me first, define your term. He was actually making a play on words. He was he was actually saying two things. First of all, we have to define what we're talking about, but he was also saying if you want to talk with you, you'll have to pay. <laughs> so that's a little play on words he was doing. Yes, I define innovation, you know, innovation is only innovation if it's valuable in the eyes of the recipient. Okay. Mm-hmm. But also, innovation is is multidimensional. Okay, there is high risk innovation. There is relatively low risk innovation. There is innovation which which is valuable to a small number of people to a large number of people. There is innovation which is discontinuous and takes late, small leaps. There's innovation which which is small and incremental. So, um, which is why, of course, a simple measure like you know new chemical entities registered or something is a pretty crude proxy. I mean, it's a, we can use it, but we shouldn't be fooled to this idea that all that matters is fda approvals per, per year that you, you know in two parallel universes you could have two fda one of whom approved 100 drugs a year the other one of whom, of whom approved 50 and the one that approved 50 could be adding more value to society easily
0: yeah 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 and you know and we've seen that with some of the stuff we publish as well i mean some companies have been phenomenal at getting us approvals but have had no sales yes. as a result of them some have had very few and done very well so and, you know and,
1: there's no and, big, But, but of, even sales i think one of those where hmm. my definition is slightly takes a slightly different perspective from your innovation hmm. index is that it's you know sales are important and we're using them as a proxy to for societal value value to society but of course it is only a proxy you know there are yeah. drugs which sell a yeah. lot which don't necessarily offer that much value to society you know? I'm thinking about yeah. you, know, you know drugs that treat phone lanes for example yes
0: yeah yeah and as you say actually there is no well, we don't do it no one else is really tracking that value to society because clearly there's a lot of value left on the table for studies that people aren't doing or drugs we're not developing as well
1: think um, about the conditions for which there is no cure or not not even any kind of management you know I'm, I'm sitting here nursing my osteoarthritic knees thinking you know do something industry (laughs) you know and and there were lots of other conditions too
0: yeah yeah and yeah and and that commercial challenge remains a challenge for all of it i remember sitting 25 years ago looking at someone with a disease modifier for osteoarthritis that clearly could never see the light of day because you would never know that you were benefiting right so Mm you know so people would be reluctant to pay and, and, and so forth and maybe that could be a useful way of saying that pull from the kind of commercial you know if if everyone's interested in dollars and and whether that's whether we're getting too many of them or too few i guess that pull describes some of the selection pressure for the you know you use the the kind of metaphor of habitats a lot on the way through so do you want to you know tell us you know as you go through the sort of discovery habitat and the i'll do
1: that but first of all let me very quickly pick up one thing you said there but you know profitability and sales remember the selection pressure on the industry is not sales or even profit. It's mm-hmm. it's not even return on investment. It is risk adjusted return on investment. The, that's what matters, you know, and yeah. and, and that's particularly important now, in industry, where the risks are so complex and so large. So to to go back to my to answer your question about habitats, the the first thing that I discovered in the in the, the in the researchers is that there are all of these entities that are constantly interacting but they don't interact uh, everybody interacting with everybody in the same to the same degree they cluster and they cluster into habitats and in the book i talk about seven habitats the discovery habitat the innovation habitat the coalition habitat value habitat pricing patient habitat, and so on and competition habitat and the reason that's important is that all ecosystems are, are have, have habitats or made up of habitats but an ecosystem doesn't work unless each of its habitats work they all have to work and they, if essentially each habitat has to contribute something to it to the ecosystem and each, each habitat has it makes a different contribution and if and so, so I, having you know thought of it that way said so okay well What do these habitats? These having uncovered the seven habitats, then come to this conclusion about they need to contribute. What do they need to contribute to the ecosystem in order for us to have a sustainable, affordable supply of new medicines? Mm -hmm. So you know, so we do have innovation, but we can't afford it, and it's you know economically and, and scientifically sustainable. And so then I looked at each of these habitats. Uh, and in the course of the interviews, I essentially asked the questions, so what does it need to contribute? That habitat needs to contribute to the ecosystem so that ultimately we, we get this, we get what we want. And mm. so let me think of an example. So, for example, the discovery habitat, quite obviously, um, uh, you know, academic researchers, the NIH, some philanthropists. And they, the job of that habitat is to contribute new knowledge into the ecosystem. But not just any old new knowledge. That new knowledge has to be of a, a decent quality, quantity and it has, has to have certain qualities, such as its relevance to societal needs and, importantly, its predictivity. That is, you know, um, you may have read Christopher Austin's work when you headed up MCATs for NIH. It has, to be, uh, has a high degree of being translated through into, into innovation. Mm. And, frankly, it's not very good at doing that. Mm-hmm. When when you talk to the the innovators who take that knowledge and try and turn it into drugs, they talk about how to duplicate work and these huge amounts of you know the value of death as it goes from academia into in, in, into innovation and industry, and our industry doesn't do that very well. So the, the discovery habitat doesn't do that very well. Take an example. I could go through you know well if you want me to go through other habitats and talk about what the issue contributed. What they should and then how they fail to, but that's essentially the premise of the book. That if you look at these seven habitats, you can understand what they need to contribute, what they're failing to contribute, and then that leads to what we need to do to fix the system.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think in that interaction. You see both the opportunity and the challenge, which your book addresses. Of some, you know, single issue folks talk about, you know, improving discovery in order that everything else gets better. And you go, well, of course, it might not just as a result of, you know, AI-based discovery companies producing more drugs for a failing innovation habitat. It makes a lot more sense than that.
1: You raise an interesting point there. You know, the industry is the ecosystem is full of single issue folks Hmm. who think the answer is. For example, AI, or the answer is how we change the patent laws, or the answer is they sold out, or whatever. And they're mostly right, but their answers are, you know, as, this, as the expression goes, necessary but not sufficient. And I think, you know, those people when they read new drugs fair prices, they'll 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 recognise their issues in there but it, it comes back this thing if you, when you if you have to manage an ecosystem if you have to manage the apothecary's gardeners okay you, you have to do lots of different things now you know farmers and agriculturists used to think that well you know this is easy really all that if we want to increase the yield on our orchard we just zap the field with with ddt and then you quickly realize it had unintended consequences. And the, what the book argues is that if you try any of these, if you focus on any of these single issues, A, it won't be sufficient, and B, it might well have unintended consequences. So if we just had price controls, <coughs> you know, if we pass the hr 3 for instance, and just had price controls, then there would be an impact on investment in innovation. If we just leave free pricing, then the direction that innovation will take will be, as we're seeing, for instance, into what, what in other words I call the obligation exploiter niche, you know, ever smaller niches of, with impacting on ever smaller populations, but charging ever higher prices. And that will free the social contract. So you have to treat it as a system yeah, uh, because it is a system yeah, and it's naive yeah. to think otherwise. I think.
0: Yeah, and and it's an unfortunate, inconvenient truth for folks, right, is that it might be hard rather than easy to fix some of this stuff. And, you know, I like that. So clearly you've established no one disagrees that it's vital to our society. You then essentially you know the the conclusion is that the current ecosystem is not healthy could you you know i think we just thought you know they've moved to a farm this year and one of the things i'm very aware of is some things grow that you don't want to and some things don't grow that you do and some things will take over if they can you know your view of the apothecary's garden is that it's essentially unhealthy at the moment so what was you know, what was your definition of unhealthy and uh, you know and, and, and where do you start to see glimmers of hope coming from the point
1: of view what what do we want this ecosystem to deliver we wanted to deliver lots of drugs that are societally valuable, which is a combination of how good they are and how many people they affect, and that are that we can afford that, that are affordable. That doesn't necessarily mean cheap, of course. You know, some drugs are, are, are going to be expensive. That's what we want the system to deliver. Okay? Um, as I argue in the book. We're not doing a great job at that. And of course, there are some fantastic drugs, you know, and you know the industry. The, the industry psychologists always, you know, trot out Savaldi as the classic example, but there are lots of others. Okay, most of you know most people listening to this will, are alive, or their loved ones are alive because of something the pharmaceutical industry did. So there's lots of good examples, but there's there's a lot more we can do, and the the cost issue is is becoming worse. Now it's it's been exacerbated. You know, you and I are both old enough to have seen the exacerbation of this problem as we shifted from small molecules to biologics, mm. and we're seeing it now with things like you know some of the immunology products. But as cell and gene therapies get into their stride, this problem will be amplified even further. Mm. Mm. And to go back to my arguing couple metaphor you know it's mm. bad enough if you're bickering when you're when you're both single and working with relatively little strains of like. when you start having kids and the money gets tight and those sorts of things then mm. you know the, the, the tensions yeah. become worse yeah.
0: and so, someone's just gone and bought a porsche yeah, it's
1: a... yeah that's right, exactly so we need to think about how we manage the system so it'll, it'll give us those things otherwise it will gives so give us the drugs you want it prices we can afford and and sustainably when when i say sustainably of course that's a another way of saying so that the industry can make a reasonable return on risk adjusted return on investment because if it doesn't those same people that say how much they love the life sciences industry now will just pick up their money and go invest it somewhere else
0: yeah and in all of this the the sort of role of the apothecary is is important because you know the industry is Doesn't have a central controller who who can manage that, you know.
1: Yeah, that's an important point. So in the in in the book, and you know, we wouldn't have to go through the. I identify in the seven habits. I identified thirty-one problems. Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm trying to write a New York Times bestseller, I try to boil it down to, you know, the three things we have to fix. But that's just not the way complex adaptive systems work, and and there are about 27 things that we need to do to solve those 31 problems but and and the interesting thing is that because it's a complex adaptive ecosystem where everything interacts with everything else you can't cherry pick those 27 things you can't say oh I'll do that one that one and that one you can't um, you know uh, management consultants are very fond of the Pareto principle and say well let's just pick the 20% 20% of things that will have 80% of the impact. That's not the way complex adaptive systems work. So you have to do all 27 of these things. But I, by way of thinking about the implementation, because I'm, I'm very you know, pragmatically oriented, do sort of coalesce into three streams of, of activity. And so towards the end of the book, I talk about these three streams of activity that they, they, they coalesce to, to what we need to do. You know, there's a, I, I avoided in the book, I I made a deliberate point of avoiding the word moonshot because it's become cliche. But there are essentially three big, big, hairy, audacious goals that uh, we need to achieve. Um, you know, The first one is we need to make innovation more valuable. That is more new drugs that have more societal impact that are more affordable. Okay? And that involves all sorts of things such as fixing the translation problem, but also things like the cost and inefficiency of the coalition habitat, which is where you pull together all of the entities needed to develop a drug intervention, capitalism. Mm-hmm. So the first project is the, the Valuable Innovation project. And the second of the three is the Valid Value Pricing Project so that we, we change the system. There's a whole load of things we do, including value-based pricing, so that the prices that are charged for drugs relate to their value. And that's not the case at the moment. Mm. And the the third of the three projects is the managed competition project. That is, so we make the market work so that competition actually works. Now, and that includes things like changes to the patent and regulator exclusivity systems, because the system does need forms of temporary monopoly. Mm. Mm. The the two things that we need to improve about that are, one, that that monopoly is used to incentivize real value in the, the system at the moment isn't very good at differentiating between uh, according to value mm. and the second is that we needed to make we need to make it more more predictable and less gameable mm. Um, mm. so that you know so that both innovators and imitators you know generics and biosimilar companies can look at it and say right the point at which i'll be able to to imitate or the point which i'll be imitated is this point yeah and, and not somewhere in that 30 year window now yeah. uh, yeah. there's know there three big projects that need to be done and to go back to your point about there is no apothecary there is no central innovator mm. i think that's a that's a really important point here because to do these things you know the government can't do these whichever mm. government it is the industry can't do it there is no one entity within the system that can do it it's a societal project it's a societal societal problem and it's a societal project and and, you know at the end of the the very last part of the book i I come down to that sort of call to action that if we think this is what we want if what we want is a good supply of drugs that are valuable to society at prices we can afford and that that's sustainable so that the industry survives and and all those other good things this is a, a thing that society needs to work on together. Now, you know, governments have a role, of in a dominant role in some parts, and take the lead. The industry has a role in some parts, have a, a role in, in some parts. But we have to do these three things. Otherwise, we risk the the marriage falling apart. We risk the social contract failing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, I thought it was, you know, really interesting to continue to bring that kind of ecosystem thinking. It, it, I was looking at the story of the Great Barrier Reef, a couple of weeks ago,
1: yeah.
0: and you know that was predicted to have died about five years ago,
1: yeah.
0: and now it's healthier than ever it seems, and actually no one was forecasting it would become healthy again, and it seems like there was never one person intervened so i I guess the you know one of the big you know which is nice to hear, but one of the big questions is how soon you would be able to tell it was becoming unhealthy, and how quickly you'd be able to tell that it was becoming healthier because you know these some of these are ten twenty thirty. Fifty uh, you
1: know, these, these are these are gen, these are generational projects, but you know where we are now, where we sit with the the pharmaceutical innovation ecosystem now, is the result mm. of things which happened shortly during and shortly after the Second World War, mm. and, and and lots of consequential things afterwards. Things, things like the food disaster and regulatory changes, and and then the the, the 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 biotech revolutions and all of those things. But you know ecosystems don't change again that comes back to this thing of let's get away from this uh, mechanistic metaphor that you can somehow just change a part of the machine and and things will will change you have to manage it as a complex adaptive ecosystem and the first step to managing it is understanding it and that's what i've tried to do or at least make a contribution towards in the book um you know i you know i read john and peter's books for example highly, I enjoyed reading them, I very much enjoyed speaking to both of them and adding their thoughts into the book, but I do take a much broader, wider more holistic view than they do, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's, you know, whether you're on you know, broadly speaking Peter and John are both on this industry side of the, the equation whether you're there or whether you're in with the equally strongly motivated people on the other side who would who you know who think the industry are villains and would and control prices tomorrow and turn it into a public utility. Whether you know, whichever side you're on, you will find things in this book that you will agree with, and you will yeah. also find things that you vehemently disagree with. Yeah. yeah.
0: That
1: yeah. is yeah exactly. enough.
0: <laughs> yeah I was keen actually not to try to go through this with you chapter by chapter because I, I think as I said to you this is this is one of those books that's so incompressible because you know a lot of book lot of books have a sort of central thing that you go, oh, okay, I think I understand that after the end of the first chapter, yours isn't one so
1: my, I, my um, you know my metaphor about being the marriage counselor between these this warring couple, you know whatever I say, they will hear. they will agree with the bits they agree with. You but the truth Mm. is they've got they've they've got to to understand each other um Mm. and um because we want this couple to stay together you know we want society and the 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 pharmaceutical innovation of the system to work together and carry on doing because there's there's still much to do
0: yeah no, there's definitely risk in that adversarial approach. There's a book, uh, Monica Guzman's uh, "I Never Thought of It That Way," which talks about the sort of you know the, the challenge of polarity and the, especially in the political debate, mm-hmm. so often now and 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 therefore distillation of these and and batons that people are using against each other.
1: It's, it's like everything else, you know, like you know, as we struggle to stay fit and maintain a healthy weight and all of those things, you know. The, the people that the snake oil merchants to come along and say you can do it with just this exercise, or you can do it with eating just type of food. We know that, that that's just not the way the world works.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. How important? Just I mean, and I would recommend people do read this book. How important? You know, before they start, do you think it isn't? Do you think they need to be comfortable with you know ideas from you know evolution, ideas from you know no, they biology act- and
1: I sat down at the beginning and thought, hey, who, am I, who am I trying to speak to? This is the first thing in the author does. Who am I trying to speak to? Here. And I'm I'm trying to... I'm not really trying to engage the people at either extreme of the debate. I'm trying to talk to people in the middle who, for, who regard pharmaceutical innovation as important, mm-hmm. but don't, don't necessarily have pre-knowledge of of how the system works. I've tried to write it so that an educated layman can understand it. You know, an industry expert reading it will read bits and say, yes, yes, I know that bit, or Brian has clearly approximated or summarized it at this point because I've written it for, for a, a more general reader, partly because one of the interesting things I found is even the industry experts you speak to, they are experts in the area, but they're not experts in the system. Yep. So, so you have yeah. to write it in an an way. and uh, I also wrote it so you don't need any pre knowledge of evolutionary science or, or ecology or anything. I, I've tried to spell, I've tried to explain those things with lots of metaphors, and it's you, you probably notice in the book that it, it's as, as well as the main text there are lots and lots and lots of footnotes um, mm-hmm. where I try yeah. to use ecological biological parallels to explain things. So. I don't know if you saw I just thinking about my saxophone here. I was trying to explain the difference at one point between translational research and translational science. Mm-hmm. And eventually it came to me that translational research, that is, you know, trying the, the, the work you do to convert a piece of scientific knowledge into a drug, give us some translational science, which is about understanding how the translation process works and why a model isn't perfect and, and so I said, it's 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 exactly like my my music my saxophone teacher gives me in my saxophone lessons it's okay so we're going to spend some of the time working on scales and arpeggios and 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 the theory and then we're going to spend some time learning a tune now we need to do both but you mm-hmm. but you know translational science is more like your scales and arpeggios and, yeah. and 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 translational research is more like learning a tune
0: yeah
1: yeah and uh, of course what has happened in the industry is, to some extent, we're also goddamn determined to play a tune that we To some, you what know, Christopher Austin's point is, we have to uh, a degree neglected our scales and arpeggios, mm. and therefore yeah. it takes us longer to learn the tunes, and it's more costly to learn the tunes. Yeah,
0: and he's an opera singer, right? If I, if I remember, Christopher Austin. Uh, yeah, how. yeah, and no, I think uh, I think that's his uh, one of his claims to fame is that he's a, I, think, I think he was a professional opera singer so he definitely would understand that metaphor for sure but yeah no, I, I, I think that's exactly right and I think there, there are those folks that think that this is a technology problem or that this is somehow a as you say a kind of machine or a mechanistic problem rather than a uh, you know rather than a human challenge uh to to, to get it's a heads interesting. around interesting
1: one of the inspirations for this book I read, I read a book we short showing for this one and forgive me, I can't remember its name now, but it was about the difficult, the, the drawbacks of metaphors. Now, we all use metaphors mm-hmm. all the time. They're incredibly useful. But in one of the things this book says, is that there have been episodes in history where drawbacks of, where metaphors have held us back. Okay, And a yeah. classic example is flight. So for centuries, we tried to fly by looking at birds and think, well, how do we build machines that flap their wings? And that just mm. doesn't work <laughs> and if yeah. we'd have forgotten the bird metaphor and thought about it differently we'd have learned to fly yeah. faster yeah and I, I argue in the book that the machine metaphor this idea that pharmaceutical innovation is a machine with a big nobody where you turn it for more money or less money and you get more well, or less drugs at the end is another metaphor that's holding this back um and yeah. in fact yeah. the the ecosystem metaphor that i that using ecosystem using ecosystems. I'm not really using it as a metaphor. What we have mm-hmm. in pharmaceutical innovation is not like an ecosystem. It is an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. It's multiple entities mm-hmm. that interact with each other and adapt to each other. That is a complex adaptive system. It's not like a complex adaptive system. It is a complex adaptive system.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really helpful illustration. Uh, I don't think it is the book that you're referring to, but I know surfaces and essences. The Douglas Hofstadter book talks about the role of analogy in all of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think That's necessarily true. scientists, you know, do know that they use analogy all the time, and I think some of that is definitely a, 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 an issue because it can be misleading as well as useful uh, for, mm-hmm. for 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 them. and others. it's a
1: dumb, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's, just think how how we were held back in you know atomic theory by thinking about atoms as as kind of billiard balls, you know. And and when I broke down, we we shifted our thinking.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's a really good segue into two things. I I think, you know, how we think about things is clearly going to be very important going forwards. And I'd be interested, you know, certainly when direct people towards your book, do you have other books that you would recommend for, you know, folks who are, you know, uh, aspiring innovation geeks or pharmaceutical geeks?
1: I don't know. I, I think... You know, at 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 the, at the risk of self-referencing, which is always a sort of sin for academics, if they find this topic interesting, they'll find Darwin's Medicine interesting, yeah. which is the the book about the speciation of business models. You know, I wrote, I wrote about the speciation of business models in the, in the life sciences industry. There are lots of good there are lots of good books. That to, to be honest, a lot of the books I read are not popular science type books. They're, You know extremely well they're extremely interesting to me but they're they're probably hard work for if if, you, if you're not have that this warped mind that i have so you know, i'm reading a book at the moment about pastor's quadrant and in innovation which is the idea of using fundamental theory to apply purposes that's it's called pastor's quadrant and and i'm very interested in this topic of how we use fundamental concepts towards applied ends it, it it's something that I find one of the frustrating, among in our in our industry, you know, because you and I know industry well. I often, I think it's something that our industry is weak at in its commercial side. So let me explain briefly what I mean by that. We would call ourselves a science-based industry, and if I, if I'm standing in front of a board, as I sometimes do. You know, I'll sometimes play this game where I'll go over to the head of R&D, the chief science officer, and say, so, so tell me, how many of your people, your senior people, uh, how many of them have PhDs in science? And he laughs at me and he says, what a stupid question, Brian. They all do. I mean, you don't get in the door unless they have a PhD in this. And I wonder over to the chief commercial officer, the chief strategy officer, or the chief marketing officer. said, so, and your guys? Oh, well, some of them have PhDs in what well you know in science mm. so how many of them have phds in strategy or mm. economics or organization and management so no almost not and yeah. we as an industry, we we neglect that side of things. It's there's a there's a good evolutionary reason for it. it the, the period after the Second World War, when we invented you know beta blockers and ACE inhibitors and all of those things, they were so fantastic compared to what went before mm. that actually you didn't need to be brilliant at marketing and commercial. They more or less sold themselves. So mm. there was no selection pressure to be good, become as good at commercial as we were at science
0: yeah
1: and they've said even today you know that the competency and the levels of abilities and the technical prowess if i can call it that of um, our guys in r&d is greater than it is in in, in commercial which is not to say that everybody in commercial is stupid and unskilled of course but you know if you did the comparison yeah Yeah. yes There's a little yeah. acid test that I, that, I, that I use sometimes. You know, so I'll, 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 let's imagine that I went up to all of the chemists in your R and D department and asked them to define molecule, atom, and ion, and, and, and they could all do that. And I'd get a definition for each, and they would all say the same thing, and they would all differentiate between those two things. I then go over to your commercial department, and say, "Okay, get a hundred of your your chief commercial people, ask them to define." Strategy, tactics, and objectives—I would get at least a thousand definitions, and it all blur and intermingle.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a book bear of mine, and I think actually go back to your your correction of me with you know the commercial pull that it's a risk based commercial pull. Yeah. I think the understanding of risk is terrible. I think the understanding of decision science is is, is really poor as well. Next yeah. to some of those portfolio conversations, and and of course that you know as you say, there's a lot of room for improvement, or for someone who can you know you look at the future of cell and gene therapy is it just to stamp out one therapy and chart and have a pnl per drug or or have a tech-based approach or a netflix-based approach And but you need people that can get their heads around that and then say yes to it that's the that, you know the, the, yeah, there's a couple of challenges And,
1: know, and I, i'm lucky enough to work with you know many CEOs and commercial leaders who, have, who are getting their heads around it mm-hmm. but we, there's still a disparity between the number and proportion that think like that in hmm. commercial versus hmm. you know really switched on technical guys.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Brian. This has been as much fun as I thought it would be. Can you, uh, if people want to find you, what's the you know what are the means of doing that? Twitter, LinkedIn. Well,
1: I, I've actually just just rebuilt my website, so if they just look up pragmatic.com, p r a g m e d i c. It's a portmanteau of pragmatic and medical, pragmatic.com, you'll find all my work is 300 publications and you can ask for anything I publish. As far as the books are concerned, anywhere you buy your books. I also do a podcast called Dawn's Medicine and I have a YouTube channel, Professor Brian D. Smith, depending on how you like to digest your information, then use that. But you can request any of my PDFs of any of my previous work from my website at pragmatic.com
0: fantastic and we'll include those in the show notes as well so brian I'm, I'm i'm sorry it's taken so long to get you here is this uh i guess you'll be working on this book for uh you know making sure people do get to read it is the next book already in mind or are you
1: yeah i i i think i know what i'm going to do if you're interested i write a column and have done for many years now in pharmaceutical marketing magazine called darwin's medicine mm-hmm. and in it i draw i take these parallels between Biological evolution and organizational evolution, the evolution of our industry, and and how we can learn lessons from that. So I'm going to what I'm thinking of doing is taking, you know, I've written I mean, dozens and dozens of these columns now. I'm thinking of taking ten or twenty of the ones that have evoked the most response mm. and turning each of those into a chapter. Nice, you so know, you know, I you was. Know, joking with my wife the other day i'm going to call this book something like charles darwin ceo or something because it's about how evolutionary theory darwin in evolution can apply to business there's a one of the quotes that evolutionary biologists like to use is that you've probably heard by sabonsky who said um nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution mm-hmm. and i think that's true for business too. Nothing in business makes sense, except in the light of evolution. And I think that's what the next book will be about.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Well, you know, clearly it's going to be... Actually, Evolution's come up a few times on this. I remember talking to Stephen Johnson on the podcast here about Bandles of San Marco, the kind of yeah. uh, famous Stephen Jay Gould article, yeah. which I think actually does describe some of what we've got in, in our mm. industry as well. Uh, Brian, this has been fantastic. I feel like we uh, we need a separate conversation about Newcastle United and uh, and, and, you know, and, and innovation.
1: When you, when you emerge from the wilds of, of Norfolk and get down to London, let me know, we'll go out and we'll have lunch and I'll have a wagon of beer.
0: Sounds good. That was amazing. Thank you, Brian.
1: you're welcome. It's been a pleasure.
0: That's it for this week's episode of Idea Collider. To continue the conversation, visit our website at ideapharma.com. Follow us in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Until next time, I'm Mike Ria. wishing you great success.